This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello and welcome back to the e-commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters, Head of Retail Strategy at Acadia. And today I'm joined by not just one, but two special guests. We have Lauren Levac from the Digital Shelf Institute and Mike Black, CMO at Profitero. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, awesome to be here. So today we're going to be talking about a report that both of you worked on together called How Brands Define Content Effectiveness. And this is such a great topic. It's one that we come back to a lot with content on retail channels like Amazon, Walmart, Target, et cetera. It's so hard to know what is the right level of investment? Is this actually working? And you guys have put some time and a lot of thought and interviewing digital leaders to better understand what is effective content? What does it mean to different brands and leaders and why ultimately it includes much more than just the content itself? It relies on people, process, data, and measurement that needs to be in place in order to enable it. So you've put together a framework in this report as well as a lot of background on what content effectiveness means and excited to dig into that with both of you today. Thanks for having us, Kiri. We're excited to dive in. I think it was a passion project for Mike and I when we first came together about the idea. We got really excited. So the results have been really cool to see. Yeah, definitely shines through. Well, before we jump in, just in case, for anyone who is not familiar with each of you guys, Mike Black is the CMO of Profitero, a global commerce acceleration company. Mike joined Profitero in 2017 as vice president of marketing and has been instrumental in the company's growth. And after joining Publicis Group, grew the company's offerings beyond digital shelf analytics to include predictive analytics, retail media, and content activation solutions. Prior to joining Profitero, Mike held marketing roles at Nielsen and Staples. And he's a famous LinkedIn influencer. Sorry, famous I had to add that in for you, Mike. <laughs> and Lauren leads the Digital Shelf Institute in defining the strategy to create a global commerce community that supports brands, retailers, and future leaders in the complex world of digital. Across her role, she's worked with hundreds of brand manufacturers, helping them to develop an overall e-commerce strategy and vision for their commerce journey, leveraging her work at Johnson & Johnson, where she was the owner of the digital shelf for the consumer family of products for North America. There, she launched a new approach for the way the consumer North America business went to digital retail, both in pure play and omni-channel streams, covering multiple platforms such as OTC, beauty, oral care, baby care, and wound care with accountability for 40-plus retailers and 33-plus brands. So let's talk about how brands define content effectiveness and this, you know, putting together research and a point of view like this goes outside of both of your day jobs. So what made you put some extra time aside to dive deep into this topic? Okay, I'll take this one. (laughs) I mean, for me, it was really when I think about the DSI and the research that we do, we focus on what the digital leaders are challenged with. And one of the biggest things that came up in most of the conversations was, I know that I have the right content and I know that it is best in class. What's next? What do I think about next? And 
Mike and I had actually worked on prior research. It was a framework for digital shelf measurement. And we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into content, knowing that that's a really big focus. It's one of the most impactful pieces of the product detail page. And we wanted to help brands understand kind of what that next step was, that next level for them to achieve effectiveness. I'm air quoting there because I think it's not a very clear definition. So we set out and were able to interview over 12 different digital leaders. And the conversations were incredible. I mean, we learned so many things that we didn't expect in the beginning. And what we ultimately figured out was it's really an art and a science. There's no very clear kind of definition for where we landed. But overall, brands are really interested in this topic. And that's how we kind of jumped into it. Yeah, I think for me, like, what most inspired me to do this is I see so much conversation about investment in retail media, and rightly so. But it's really hard to separate traffic from conversion. Even when you just think of marketing in general, all advertising is really dependent on the strength of creative. It's where the consumer lands and how they convert that you know, I felt like we needed to elevate the dialogue around content as a force multiplier for that traffic. And we didn't think that brands necessarily had the right framework to think about that because to Lauren's point, it's just a lot to get content up, any content. And we found that with a lot of brands in early stage maternity, it's really just drinking from the fire hose, trying to get content up, making it sure that's there every day. But the more that we're investing in traffic driving activities to these pages, the consequence is important of this content as a conversion driver. And I think we'll talk about an SEO driver is so critical. We need a better balance. And I think we just wanted to go on a journey to see how some brands were thinking through that challenge. There is a lot to unpack there. So interesting. But yes, if you're investing in retail media dollars to get traffic to your page, and sometimes even, you know, like influencer strategies or TikTok marketing, and people inevitably go to Amazon to look for the product and buy it, if that is their preference. Once they get there, you've just spent all that money acquiring a view and then actually converting it. Such a great point. Just to make this super timely, There's a big change that Amazon's rolling out at the end of the month where they're going to pull in content from other sellers on a PDP if it's missing from the brand. (laughs) And we were just at Acadia, we were just talking about, okay, what's the pros and cons here? It's like, could be a good thing if there is content missing to pull it in. But also, you know, there's some downsides there in terms of is that content on brand is it even accurate? And so Amazon's recognizing, hey, there's not, we don't have enough content on these PDPs and the brands are not developing it. Sometimes a third-party seller is, let's just put that content on the page. And so there's like, if you're not going to create that content now, if someone else does, they're going to get that content on the page and that may or may not be the type of content that you want. Yeah, it actually illustrates something we learned in the maturity curve. So in the stages of maturity, you know, step one is I just got to get the content there. And then there's this notion of what we call sufficiency. Like, do I have actually enough content to drive the algorithm and drive conversion? That's actually, I think, part of what we found is still in the middle stages. I think when we were talking to brands about what effectiveness really means in a few clients, there is this notion of also understanding your consumer intimately and communicating to them in the best way for your brand, which is something only a brand really knows how to do well, right? And we had, I think what was really interesting, there was several brands, not many, that were really investing a lot upfront 
in research to understand how consumers were thinking about their brand and how to apply that digitally. And we even had one brand that stands out in my head that uses the PDP as the concept for launching the entire product, right? So you have this sort of, the PDP is the brief that once they get that nailed and they bring the consumer research into it, it goes all the way upstream to all the brand assets. And it's really thinking about that. So when I hear that Amazon is going to use sellers to fill in the gaps, it does raise a little bit of concern about are you shortcutting the brand's understanding of what that consumer wants? And it isn't just something you can kind of programmatically always just kind of do. Like you need some rich understanding. And I think that's where that acceleration from just sufficiency to effectiveness, that's the terrain is that deep understanding of that consumer. Right. I also think that's a motivator too. Like just that one sentence you said, Kiri, I hope can motivate the brands that haven't gotten to that first stage of, hey, even compliance or completeness, since it is a maturity curve to say, if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And then you don't have the control that you want. And you're not telling the story of the brand. And to be quite honest, I think with AI, that's going to be a trend for most retailers because they're saying, hey, we don't have the content we need. We're not getting it from the brand. We're going to do it elsewhere. So that is a huge catalyst for brands to get this right. And to think about not only checking the box for content to Mike's point through the compliance and then the completeness, but is this actually driving to conversion? And that takes a lot more complexity and you need the foundational elements of having the content, knowing where the data is and getting it online before you can even get there. But I think that will be a huge catalyst even for executives to buy into the overall content is important thing. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, there are a couple of key things I pulled out from your report. One is there are five core pillars of content effectiveness And then there is a framework of how to activate it. So let's start with the five core pillars of content effectiveness. And at a higher level, if you can kind of walk us through what each of those are. Sure. I can take this one, Mike. So before I go into the pillars, I think what's interesting is when we set out to do this report, we were like, okay, how do we define content effectiveness? And we more broadly realize there are so many other elements that come into play to even get to content effectiveness. And that's really where the pillars came in after we had all of our different discussions. And we were able to kind of bring it down to five different pillars with one common thread. So the first one's people. So really focusing on, do you have the right people in place and the right resources to actually create the content, to store the content, to modify the content, to approve the content? So having the right people is really critical to even starting your journey. The right data and systems. So that's number two. Do you know where the content lives? Do you have a dam? Do you have a PIM? Do you have all of the different pieces that you need to actually flow that data to the product detail page? The third one is process. This is something that I am very passionate about because I think people hear the word process and think, ooh, no, we don't want to focus on that. But you have to have the right process to understand, even to Mike's point about that one brand that brings the PDP in as the basis of your entire process, you need to understand the handoffs cross-functionally to say, okay, here's the piece of content I have. Here's how it's fitting in with the brand. Here's the approval. Here's where it's getting online. And here's measuring if it is effective and then pulling that back into the process. The fourth one is measurement to that point. How are you measuring the content that you're putting out there on the PDP? Is it effective? What are the KPIs? What systems are you using to measure that as well? The fifth one is retailer collaboration. So what we really found was 
in order to get to content effectiveness, you have to have a relationship with your retailer, whether it's Amazon, Walmart, Kroger, wherever you sell, how are you working with them to understand what are their brand guidelines? How are they thinking about content? What do they know about the shopper at their retailer that you might not know that you can plug into your overarching strategy? And a lot of that happens in joint business planning. And we talked a lot about that in a lot of our interviews. So those are really the core pillars that you need to focus on to really get to content effectiveness with the underlying kind of theme throughout all of them being the shopper. We heard that from every single brand that we focused on. You can call it the shopper, the consumer, but understanding how are they shopping? What do they want? What kind of information are they looking for? How are they doing their research? We're really, as brands, I think they're pivoting more towards really fundamentally understanding that first rather than living in silos and building out all this content and saying, hey, we think this is great and not actually consulting the consumer or the shopper. So that's the underlying theme throughout all of those pillars. And brands are really doubling down on understanding who their shopper is, where they're shopping, and using the data that they have to really kind of inform those decisions. This podcast is brought to you by Acadia, a trusted partner for challenger brands who are looking to make the best use of every marketing dollar, whether that is through SEO, performance media, Amazon and retail media, analytics, or organic social. To learn more, visit acadia.io. That's A-C-A-D-I-A dot I-O. Besides looking at data, presumably from the retailer and pulling up, you know, different Amazon marketing cloud or performance reports there, what are some other ways that best-in-class brands are understanding the shopper for this purpose? Yeah. Well, I think the question of data measurement is a really interesting one. And I think there's different tiers of that. And I'll kind of, I think one of the most universal metrics we found is the impact of content on search organically. And it's not really surprising. If you look back in the industry, no one, I mean, I work in B2B marketing, no one really debates anymore the power of search optimization. I mean, we write content all the time to optimize on the Google engine. And I think retail is moving in that direction as well. We do know that things influence algorithms and we need to make our products healthy. So it's the most extensible data set you can get from you know public collection and technologies like Profitero. It's easy to get that data. So there's a degree of it's easier to get, it's meaningful. And it's one of the things we found is it's an easy thing to explain to your leadership team, this idea that placement matters and you know where your products show up on the shelf matters. It's why we're investing so much in media. So when they're explaining why content matters, being able to say, oh, well, it drives placement too. It maybe makes all that other stuff more efficient becomes easier. And I think we did a lot to try to understand how do our e-commerce leaders communicate this to their leaders. And we found that they really do simplify and quickly connect content equals better placement equals better sales, right? So that was one where that is sort of more universally available. There is definitely the gold standard, I think, is conversion. But that's only available for some retailers. We know that Amazon has conversion rates that are available. And so there's a little bit of a selective using maybe Amazon as a proxy to test these things. But there's opportunity there. Certainly, like that's where A-B testing can be super powerful, like if Amazon rolls out that thing you talked about, which is seller, you know, supported content, we know they're using underlying 
conversion metrics. And I think there's an opportunity there for retailers to be better partners with brands to make that more accessible. And we did find examples where in JBPs, when a brand earns enough trust as the category expert, retailers will share some of that conversion data so that the brand can work on their behalf to help guide what that content strategy will look like. And I think that's like the next. And the last thing I'll say is there's this next level, which I'll call almost, you're getting deeper into the audience emotion, a little bit more predictive. And I'll give you an example. You know, we would talk about a company like Visit, right? They have a way of measuring content from the lens of the shopper, especially images, that is predicted or correlated with how it will resonate and how it will convert. And that is another way to get there. And there are other tools and technologies, Visits One, Profitero, we're developing some things in that area, but that's another way. And I think you do find that when you don't get those conversion rates and you want that proxy, and it's also more than conversions, a little more about emotion and brand, there is this other set of technologies coming down the pipe. And the other thing I'll add to that is when we were having some of our conversations, we talked a little bit about content usage. So not necessarily an external measurement, but more of an internal measurement to say, is the content that I'm creating actually being used across my channels? And for some of the brands that were a little more advanced on their content effectiveness journey, they use that to say, are we wasting money? Are we duplicating costs? Are teams cross-functionally using the assets that we're actually creating. So I thought that was a really unique metric that maybe not everyone is focusing on, but you can actually say, okay, is the content that I'm developing effective for my internal teams based on our branding and how we're using it on all of our different channels? So that's a good internal metric to say, okay, how effective is it being used cross-functionally before it even gets external? Is there anything else that's an interesting point about something that is not necessarily counterintuitive, but like an interesting tidbit that you got from those conversations? What else was either counterintuitive or yeah, particularly new to you from putting these pillars together? I think what was really, you know, surprising to me is the degree in which this content process is connected and not connected to the new product launch process, right? So when I worked at Nielsen, I worked in the part of the business that worked on launching new products and innovation. So I was very aware of this thing called stage gates, right? And so when a new product comes to life and gets born into the world, there's a very deliberate process to then bring in the marketing activation of that product. It starts way, way, way back in time. And everybody kind of knows when it reaches a different stage, different team comes in, you know, you have these hands off. I think what we found is that some companies have really done a good job of embedding this idea of content creation really far up funnel. You know, they generally brands know what is their deadline to get content to the retailer. But there was sort of some brands that had kind of a work back plan that went further upstream and said, when our brand team creates any creative, any asset for physical or digital, it happens at that moment and it happens holistically so that those assets are done right and get out. Whereas in some brands, it feels a little bit more like sort of an afterthought. You know, we overinvest in all the other assets, social media, in-store signage. And then, oh yeah, by the way, commerce team, can you pick up these assets and like just push those out? And that's where Lauren gets to the point of the hidden iceberg of this is all the reworking and working that's happening, right? So if you have that second model where digital content is an afterthought, what happens is you're actually now investing two to three times more effort to fix all that content, right? And that I think is the part that the leadership teams don't always really see is that there is a lot of rework being done. So not only is that content not great, 
but someone's going to have to pick up that job and make it better. And now you've, you know, so I think I learned a lot that some brands have figured out how to do this measure twice, cut once type approach to content. And I think they move faster. They have better content from day one and they're heavily reducing the amount of wastage in their system. Love that. That's super. So you talk a little bit in one of the frameworks in the report about art versus science. One thing that, you know, if we could wake up tomorrow and there is a return on content metric, which is I spend $1,000 on this PDP and I'm getting back, you know, $10,000 in sales or something like that, it would solve so much. But we haven't really been able to get there because of, you know, lots of reasons. The dynamism of the algorithm that has changed and we don't know, you know, enough about like whether the traffic coming to that page is paid or organic and how those two different audiences convert so much. Talk a little bit more about this art versus science, because with the absence of like a really clear singular metric on like the return of this kind of investment, we do need to cover off that art aspect. These are the unknowable things. So What did you learn from the conversations with your subjects there and from other research that you did? I think the art aspect is a lot of how we talk about digital transformation, right? It's the not so tangible change management plans or resourcing plans or working cross-functionally and understanding what functions are involved, how they work together. And I think that art piece is often overlooked when you're thinking about content specifically because the word content is a tangible thing, right? It's an image, it's a video, it's a title, and it becomes a bit of a checkbox type of exercise. And I think what we discovered as we asked people to define content effectiveness, some of them had a very clear North Star to say, this is how I define it. This is our goal. This is how we're getting towards it. But most were still trying to figure out how to define it, both internally and externally. So I think that art piece is helpful, especially when you're talking to your leaders, because you need to understand how to operate as an omni-channel organization first. And that takes the right change management processes that takes buy-in from every different level of the organization. And those can't be measured in a, hey, it's X percent of this, or you got an A on this PDP for content or for imagery. So for me, it was a lot of making sure that the brands understand how to operate within digital transformation, how to have those softer people skills. I kind of call it the human element of digital transformation, which is so critical and needs to be included in every conversation in addition to the KPIs. Yeah. And I would just build and say that the science is really about predictability, right? It's sort of coming to an understanding that if I do XYZ set of actions, there's a very good belief that certain outcomes will happen. And I think one of the things that drives that is experiments and you know controlled experiments and I think a culture of testing and learning. I'll give you kind of a great example of it's a little bit more it's a little less structural and science is that there are a couple of brands that we talked to that have this sort of this dual motion in their content engine. They have one team that's really about scaling content out. They have another team that's operating like a SWAT team that is consciously testing different variables against the retailer algorithm 
to understand what drives that. And so, you know, in a period of time, they will have a hypothesis that says, you know, this matters, you know, adding a keywords to title really matters for retailer X, Y, Z. We will then go about that. We will study the impact and we'll say, did this move the needle? Did it not? If not, we'll move on to the next thing. So there are ways to actually go into designing an experiment so that you can get a little bit more scientific rigor than you had before. It's not perfect, but that was kind of interesting. And that is something that I've seen is that does create a willingness to have a different structure and a different process and mentality. And I think that is also sometimes a barrier to this whole process is how companies are organized and how willingness they are to treat content like performance marketing, right? Because with performance marketing, we do this all the time. We test, we control, right? And now I think the opportunity is some brands are starting to think of content as performance marketing. And once you build that structure, it totally opens up this and the debate isn't there. And if you get your executive saying, hey, you know what? This is the metric we're going to drive over time. How we get there, maybe multiple things. All that matters is we're getting there and our budget is you know, staying pretty great, right? So that's the science part of it that I think. I think brands are actually making art science. So the thing that Mike was saying about Test and Learn, we talked to one of the brands and in their new product development process, they actually would launch a product, see how people react to it, and then either take it down or take that insight and put it back into the engine and rejigger their PDP, change their content, change their strategy. That, in my opinion, is actually taking art and making it a science, right? You're actually building into your process. You're accepting that it might fail. It might not work. Here's the test and learn approach. And then here's how we move forward through it. And I think brands and leaders specifically need to get more comfortable with that in order to get to the science, which is more of the conversion number. You have to have those kind of test and learns. This is a good segue into something I wanted to ask you about, which is this communication back to leadership about all of this stuff. We've talked about art versus science and what have you learned about like the best way to communicate the importance of content back to leaders when there aren't such clear metrics available? This might be one of my favorite parts of the report. And I think, Mike, when we were doing these interviews and people were talking about this, it was our aha moment. One simple thing. Choose one simple thing that you can explain to your leadership that connects content to conversion. So Mike already talked about it in the beginning around search. How can you explain that if your product is not at the top of the page, no one will see it, no one will buy it. So what is that common thread? What is that story that you can tell to the leadership without getting into the detail around how content works and how it's measured and different at every retailer? What's the common thread? And the biggest common thread we saw was search because it's very easy to say, if you can't see it, you can't buy it. So in the report, I really encourage you to look at this section because there's a lot of tactical examples around how you can take a message and you can share it with your leadership team. But that was really the common thread we heard through all of our conversations. What will resonate in your organization? Make it simple and keep talking about it. Every meeting, bring it back up and make sure that they understand it. And then from there, take your strategy and implement it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of sausage making in content. I think <laughs> yes. I, like the executive teams do not understand the systems and amount of work it takes just to get content out through syndication, nor does any need to. That's just the cost of doing business. And I think I walked away with a greater appreciation of all that work. But, you know, Lauren's right. Keep it simple. I think what really also unlocked for me 
is, and I remember one of our brands said this, is, you know, ultimately leadership cares about what retailers think. And retailers are driving this conversation. You know, if you look at what Walmart is doing, they're very vocal on omni-channel execution. They have content quality scores. These are all things that impact your standing with that retailer. And I think one of the other strategies is making the leadership team aware that this is the cost of doing business now. This is the cost of being a category captain. And then finding a way to leverage that as an advantage in your category position. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, there is a change in that, you know, one of the things I've seen is, generally speaking, we heard this too, e-commerce gets about five minutes in every JBP. And a lot of it is just tactical stuff. And it's a lot of the give and take between merchants and suppliers is like, okay, here's your content scorecard. I'm dinging you on this. I'm dinging you on that. And it's really, I think if you ask those folks, do we really even know what works with those consumers? Like, why are we doing these things? They really don't. That's an opportunity. And so we did, you know, some of the brands we talked to are investing in, I'll call like path to purchase research, you know, a little bit of unlock how a consumer thinks about navigating this category, merchandising this category, and then creating a moment in time when you can get out of that tactical level conversation to up level that, that will unleash a lot of influence which ultimately will make leadership very happy because now you're the category captain and the way that you're going to be able to exert your influence creates competitive advantage and differentiation. So that would be my build on that point. That's a good build because I think Lauren's point about tell an easy story and the easiest story is that search works better with better content story. And I feel like that is a really good place to start in a zero to one situation, like getting, going from really having nothing to having like search optimized content. And this is something that at Acadia, when we're doing an audit for a brand, absolutely, that's what we're going to start with is, do you have the keywords that are relevant to your product that are driving search volume? (laughs) These keywords literally in your product listing, that's going to jump your visibility so much. And then there is a next level of content maturity, which is going from like search optimized content and building on that. So it's really like a, you know, brand building content that answers all those questions and drives conversion and things like that. I think that's where your point, Mike, really makes sense is going from having the minimum requirements addressed to being a category captain and what retailers are saying about best-in-class content, Walmart's content quality score is an excellent one. It's very, very visible to be able to show, are you leading the market with your content? Yeah, I just want to quick build on that point because I think it's actually, and Lauren said it earlier, with that example of using reviews, in a way, what you're doing on the digital can accelerate learning that benefits the entire brand message, the category merchandising. A great example of this, how many brands do you know are launching better for you solutions, right? You know, like I just kind of did this research in the cereal. When you think about what does it mean to launch a better for you cereal, that's a very challenging thing to do. When you think about how do I message that? How do I communicate that? How does that look? Now we're navigating that space for the first time. And what we can learn as a result of thinking of the digital asset as the concept test or the stimulus can teach us a lot about that. Like maybe when we first launched this product, as Lauren mentioned, the way that we're describing the attributes and the benefits really doesn't ladder up to what the category buyer wants. 
And we found that with some clients that are in the vitamin space where efficacy really matters. We had a client that launched a vitamin that had a lower dosage, but had the same strength. But there was a lot of confusion because they thought that dosage meant it wasn't good. So they had to, as you're launching these new things, you've got to use reviews to say, okay, we have an issue here, conversion suffering. We have to educate the market better. And I think that's where content comes in. So one of the things we hear, and this is true, is talk to a CPG brand and say, well, you know, content doesn't really matter for us. Like we're a big brand. Everybody knows our brand. Fine. You know, it's more important for faucets or TVs. However, if you're a CPG brand going into a new category, going into a new benefit statement, it's a wild west. You know, so I think we just got to change the thing and be like, how can we use this digital experience where we get data so quickly to inform market research and a better understanding and make this a much more strategic conversation for the whole brand, not just this channel? And that example, Mike, encompasses all of the pillars that we ended up finding out in this report, right? You can't do any of that if you don't have the right resources with the process, with the right data and the right systems to be able to take those reviews and make those changes and actually have them flow back into the PDP. So I love that example because it illustrates the point that we're trying to make in this report. If you don't have all of those fundamentals and you can't work internally to make those changes after you've gotten that insight, you can never get to content effectiveness. So use that brands as a way to think through how can I actually go and make this change in my organization? Super. Well, just one last question for you guys. While doing these interviews, what was one learning that really surprised you? I think we talked about a lot of them, but the number one, I think for both of us, Mike, was people defining content effectiveness. That was the first question we asked every single person we interviewed. And going into it, I think I had the idea of what that meant. We got 12 different answers. Even the types of content they included in the conversation, whether it was related to conversion or whether it was related to search how they defined it in their organization by either a golden rule doc or using more of a test and learn approach. So the ultimate thing that I think we learned out of all of this is that everyone's still figuring it out. There is no clear defined, this is how you get to content effectiveness. It's all of those different pieces that we've talked about already, the pillars, understanding the shopper, and it's a maturity curve. So you as an organization need to go through and understand where am I in this journey? And what are the tools that I have, whether it's test and learn, whether it's something like a Profitero or a visit to then test and say, okay, is this content effective? But everyone is really trying to figure it out. But the people that I think are a bit further along have a very clear North Star. When we said, what is content effectiveness? Even though it might not have been the same answer, it was extremely clear. This is how we define it. These are the questions that we ask to get there. And here is how we define every single strategy that we move forward with. Yeah. I think one of my favorite definitions of content effectiveness is something that said, effective content is content that arouses shoppers' emotions. Very different than content that converts, which is what I've always preached. So that, I think, really kind of exemplifies where that change is happening. I think the other thing that surprised me to build it, like you know, Lauren nailed it, it really is about the inner workings and the processes, you know, like you get inside that what holds you back from doing all the things you want to do with content. And I think do find these processes of, you know, brands want to hold control over how the message is delivered. You know, there's a whole set of words and vocabulary you can never use. Yet we know that the retailer algorithms, you know, to win may not know that. And there's this constant tension that, 
you know, and approval processes, right? Like approval processes that take a long time to be agile, that there's a lot of inner stuff that needs to get sort of tightened up before you can really maximize. So as much as you, I see this all the time in e-commerce, you know, you have teams that are siloed. They do the things that they can do quickly in their control and they run real fast. Then the gas starts to wear out, right? Because unless you address those internal things first, and I think a lot of brands need to like spend two days on an offsite, map out their process. Yes. And if they do that, they will go further faster. And that would be my advice to everybody. It's like, just carve out some time and think through that process because I think eventually you as an isolated team in commerce, you're just going to keep banging your head against the wall. And you can't then implement things like AI to become more efficient because you don't have the baseline of what your process is. Mike had some really great insight as we were writing the report. We did like a crawl, walk, run, and he came up with the idea of having a sprint. And sprint is using AI to have more efficiency, to build more scale. But if you haven't mapped that out, done the workshop, know who's involved, who owns it, where the data is, you can't implement something like that and it won't actually help. So it's just so important to get those fundamentals first. Well, thank you both for joining me today. Lauren, could you tell us where people can get the report and anything else that you want to share? Yes, definitely. So digitalshelfinstitute.org. If you go to the resources section, it's the top report there to find it. And then Mike and I will be doing a webinar on February 7th at 12 p.m. Eastern, where we're actually bringing two brands who we interviewed for the report. So Hasbro and L'Oreal will be there. And we're going to have a panel and ask them questions about how they think through content effectiveness and get some of their really great organic stories. So make sure you sign up. You can also find that at digitalshelfinstitute.org. Must watch TV. (laughs) Yes. Sounds great. Thank you both. 